Today's gospel passage is hardly a natural one for preaching. Where's the spiritual bouquet you can take with you from the passage? The insights into the divine life, or your life? Where's the uplift, the consolations? Not easy to find them. Nor did this passage from Mark's Gospel get high praise from the other Gospel writers. Luke barely mentions it. John left the story out altogether. And Matthew severely pruned what we've just heard. Now, now while what Deacon Glenda proclaimed to us is this Sunday's Gospel, the fact is that all the readings from the scriptures offered to us on a Sunday are gospel, that is, good news. For the whole of the scripture contains words of God, and we can be just as nourished spiritually from the reading from Amos, or this Sunday's psalm, and very often the good news is mediated through the words of a hymn. I'll stick to the gospel for the day, though, but concentrate on the very beginning of it, with those remarks people were making about who Jesus was. Herod Antipas was sure Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life to haunt him. Some magical thinking there, or a whole bunch of guilt. Others were saying Jesus was Elijah, or another of the old prophets. And other witnesses added Jeremiah. There must have been something mysterious about Jesus that should make people wonder who he really was. Jesus himself asked his disciples who people were saying he was. That time, the same names came up. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah and others. Why, when Jesus was but an infant, Herod the Great, this Herod's father, inquired deviously about the whereabouts of a child so highly favored that a conjunction of two planets foretold his greatness. So from the very beginning, Jesus had been a mystery. What about Jesus made someone think he was John the Baptist come to life? A part of it may have been the way both men came to the public's notice. John emerged from the wilderness out of nowhere. And who knows what Jesus had been doing from his 12th year until he came to John to be baptized. Perhaps Jesus had been a woodworker all that time, but if he had, how would he acquire his knowledge of scripture and the depth of unusual experience in divine things? Both John and Jesus were the kind of person to set you to wondering. But other than their strange emergence from obscurity, the two men had very little in common. John the baptizer had one message. And that was God's coming judgment and the need to prepare yourself for that day. His baptisms by the Jordan River were preparatory 
to the time when the axe would be laid to the trees and the religious vipers would face judgment. John was as hard as a rock, tough as nails. His cuisine was whatever the desert offered. Jesus came eating and drinking. You have to overlook a whole lot to think of Jesus as a second John. In Jewish folklore, Elijah was the prophet expected to return as the end was approaching and the Messiah was nigh. This idea is preserved in the Passover Seder, where a cup and a seat are set aside for him, and a door is opened for Elijah to enter. And you'll remember that Elijah, along with Moses, is seen by the three disciples conversing with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. There was courage and bravado in Elijah. He confronted the hundreds of the priests of the Baal and rained down death and destruction upon the whole bunch of them. Then he fled the clutches of Queen Jezebel. Far from her henchmen, he hid out in the desert of Sinai. There he had his famous encounter with God who appeared to him not as a wind or a storm, but as a still, small voice. Or perhaps more accurately, and much more uncannily, as a faint, murmuring sound. But no, there's not much Elijah has in common with Jesus. Jeremiah is another candidate. And with Jeremiah, we come closer to hitting the mark. It's too bad the book of the prophecies of Jeremiah are preserved in the Bible in such a confusing and disordered way. Otherwise, you'd get a good sense of the sad, lonely, ill-favored prophet he was. God had told Jeremiah that his ministry as a prophet would be a hard and unrewarding one. And not for nothing had Jeremiah begged to be excused, but to no avail. He lived a lonely life with no real friends except his klutzy secretary, Gehazi, and no immediate family. He was treated to savage abuse from his fellow prophets, tossed in a cistern, left to die in a basement. He told all Israel that the Babylonians would make a clean sweep of the country, and he was right. But then he was blamed for it. He went into exile in Egypt and died a broken man. But amid his prophecies and musings, there's a pathos, a sweet longing for a better world to come, a hope that the heart of his people would turn from their evil, hard-nosed ways to walk in the way of the Lord. You have to wait until Jesus to find someone so hopeful against all hope, so patient, so persistent in speaking the Lord's word, even though no one would listen. There is one more prophet 
who during Jesus' lifetime, so far as we know, was never mentioned as a prophet who'd returned to life in Jesus, but whose words Jesus appears to have meditated deeply over and, in fact, fashioned his ministry after. This is the prophet known as the second Isaiah. He was the prophet who foretold the release of the Israelite exiles from their 60 years bondage in Babylon. Among the words second Isaiah proclaimed are these, and simply to hear them is to bring you right into the mind of Jesus. The suffering servant was despised, shunned by all, held of no account. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. We have no idea who Second Isaiah had in mind in describing such a person. Was it an individual known at the time? Was it the nation of Israel? Was it the Messiah to come? We don't know. We do know that through all through Jesus' ministry, there are reflections of these prophecies in his words and deeds. More than any other prophet in the Hebrew Bible, this suffering servant came to the fullness of being 500 years later in Jesus. Well, I guess I've done what I set out to do to shed light on the very beginning of this Sunday's Gospel. But part of my reason for doing that was that I wanted to remind you all of the importance of the Hebrew Bible to our understanding of the Christian scriptures. For there's a pervading notion that while the Old Testament might be interesting, valuable for study or meditation, we're New Testament people, and that's our Bible. I've tried to show in this sermon that if you don't know the scriptures of the Old Testament, you don't understand what's in the New. Jesus, after all, had only one scripture, and that was the Hebrew scriptures. And if he thought that not one dotted I or cross T should be removed from the holy writings of his people, we shouldn't be caught thinking they are secondary to our faith. I'd go so far to say that if you haven't discovered the Old Testament and drunk from it, the New Testament's liable to be a great big puzzle and a closed book. Oh, and if you're a collector of heresies, writing the Hebrew scriptures off as secondary to our faith is a heresy. Did you know? It's associated with a man called Marcion who did exactly that. Well, after this sidebar, I'd like to return once more to the gospel passage assigned for this Sunday. And even though the people in Jesus' time thought of him in ways that were pretty well off the mark, the question they were asking in Jesus' day was a good one. Who is Jesus after all? But I don't want simply to recite doctrinal statements we've come to use in talking about Jesus to answer this. 
true man, true God, Lord, Savior, Son of Man, Son of God, and the many other important ways we have of talking about him doctrinally. It's true to affirm these things, but do they capture the man behind the doctrine? You are, after all, not just what people say of you, that you are a professor emerita, a CEO, a therapist, a priest. I may be a priest, but that doesn't tell you what formed me, what intellectual and spiritual ferment shaped the person and the priest I grew into. And that's the kind of thing I'm interested to discover about Jesus. What formed him? And the first thing I think is true about Jesus is that he couldn't have said what he said or done what he did unless those things had emerged from a long, slow, perhaps painful development of his experience. And what seems to be the fruit of this experience in Jesus? First and foremost, the primacy of love. What events made that so important? We don't know. But certainly the love that God showed him from the beginning, a love stronger than death, must have been at the root of it. And I'd like to think Jesus learned this abiding love from his home life, too. Obedience must be a part of the deepest core of Jesus' being as well. For there is an unwavering devotion to following God's direction in all he did, especially when it led Jesus to controversy and confrontation, to pain and isolation, and finally, to death. And along with obedience, humility. We see over and over Jesus' unwillingness to have attention drawn to himself and urge those who were taught and healed by him to give the praise to God. And in Jesus' makeup, there must have been a singular absence of self, that self that so entangles and bewilders us. And that this selflessness made it possible for him to attend, without distraction, to others, especially to the outcast, the sick, the maimed, and to value women in his ministry and in his company in a way quite unlike any professional religious person of his day. Not for nothing has Jesus been called a man for others. As I end, I'd like to remind you of what St. Paul said, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to God. And if the qualities I've been describing about Jesus can be truly said to be Jesus's, then they are God's as well. How Jesus feels, how he acts, is the way God feels and acts. And if we desire to be one in Christ and one with Christ, embracing these characteristics of love, Obedience, humility, and selflessness that we see in Jesus are the provisions we need to take 
as we journey towards unity with God and through Christ. To whose name we give praise and say always, Amen. <laughs>